Alright, turn to Romans 14. So two weeks ago when I looked at this passage, I wanted to do verses 1 through 12. And then when I realized I had too much material, I stopped at verse 8. And then realized as I was going through it, we only ended up getting through verse 4. So we will consider today 5 through 12. Uh, I'm going to try to get through the that original goal of getting to verse 12. But I will read verses 1 through 12 just so we have it all in context. So Paul writes in Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might uh, be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And that's where we'll stop. So just a brief recap of what we looked at last week in verses 1 through 4. Last Lord's Day, we started looking at this issue here of the weaker and the stronger brother in the faith. Uh, We noted that there are those who are stronger in the faith and those who are weaker in the faith. So there's that that distinction being made here by Paul. Weak in the faith, strong in the faith. And the faith, we said, could be understood either subjectively or objectively. So subjectively means you are weak in your belief, weak in your trust, your personal level of trust and belief in the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. A good example of this, you could see it in Mark chapter 9. When the Jesus comes, and this is after he comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration, goes up and meets this guy whose son is demon-possessed, and the man pleads. He says, your disciples tried to cast out the demon. They were unsuccessful. Can you cast them out? And, the, and the Jesus says, you know, if, if you believe, if you have faith, and the man says, I believe, but help my unbelief. <laughs> In other words, I have a certain level of faith, but I, I have a weak faith. There's a lot of unbelief there, so help me in my unbelief. That is the weak, subjectively. Objectively, it's just your grasp of the content of the gospel and the Christian faith. So this would be someone who, perhaps a new Christian, maybe even a, a Christian who's been one for a while, who just does not know as much about the content of our faith. They either don't read the Bible enough, they don't attend church enough, they don't study enough, whatever the case may be. 
They don't have the grasp of the content of the gospel. Now, both could be in view, and we argue both are probably in view here. So the weaker brother can be a new Christian or one who just hasn't progressed very far in his or her faith. As such, this brother or sister isn't strong enough in their faith to know that certain practices or observances, in this case, food restrictions or uh, certain holy days to observe, are not necessary for Christianity. Now, all of this, we've argued, is falling under the category of what we were looking at last time of Christian liberty. Christian liberty. And we looked at the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter uh, 20, I think it's 20. Last week, we, I had it on the back of the handout. But this passage here considers Christian liberty, liberty in terms of dietary uh, practices, whether to eat, whether not to eat. Are you free to eat meat or are you only restricted to eating vegetables or some other type of restricted diet? The weaker brother, the one who either does not know enough about the faith or whose faith isn't strong enough, felt constrained to eat only vegetables, to avoid eating meat. Now, we said this could be a Jew who has coming out of that practice with their dietary restrictions, but I argued against that because the Jews really had no restriction about eating meat in general. They just had, you couldn't eat certain types of animals, but they could eat other kinds of meat as well. So it could also be a Gentile coming out of a pagan practice where they, you know, they knew that that meat was offered up to an idol, so they wanted to just avoid that altogether and just avoid any uh, semblance of sinning. Whereas the stronger brother felt no such compunction. And we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 where Paul talks, is, you're not commended whether you eat or not. It's like we know that meat offered to an idol, the idol is nothing. It's just a block of wood or a hunk of stone. It's not a God because there's only one God. So you feel free to eat the meat. But if your conscience accuses you about this, that's when you should avoid. You don't want to bruise your own conscience. So Paul's command here, though, in these first four verses is simple. To the stronger brother, he says, welcome the weaker brother. Do not despise him. Do not look down on him. Do not regard him with contempt. To the weaker brother, don't pass judgment on your brother or sister in Christ. Don't pass judgment. And that's where we left off. But I think before we move forward, I want to take a few moments here to try to clarify some things that maybe I didn't clarify well enough last week or maybe glossed over uh, in an attempt to try to finish on time. Uh, but um, I want to take just a few moments to look at some of these things. First, regarding the nature of the disputes here in the Roman church and in the church throughout the age. Does anybody remember the big fancy word I used last week that described these differences of opinion? Adiaphora. Okay, it's a, it's a fancy... It means, non, it means non-essential issues. We've been calling them non-essentials of the faith. But uh, these issues have been debated throughout the history of the church, and they're called the adiaphora, things non-essential to the faith, not central to our belief system. In Greek, the word is dialogismos. Even if you, as I say, you can almost hear me say the word dialogue, dialogismos, okay? It means a thought, an opinion, some kind of reasoning, some kind of inward questioning in your, in your own conscience. Uh, the various English translations of that word, which you will see here in Romans 14, 
uh, you're, if you're using the NKGV, you probably see doubtful things there in verse 3. Doubtful things. I believe it's verse 3. Um, no, sorry, verse 1. The end of verse 1. Doubtful things there. Is that what you see there? Okay. Uh, the ESV or the New American Standard have opinions. Uh, if you're using an NIV, it says disputable matters. If you're using a Christian Standard Bible, which I don't think anybody is, but if you're using a Christian Standard Bible, it's disputed matters. So disputable matters, disputed matters. So when you put all these, you know, when you think of how this word is translated in various English translations, opinions, doubtful things, disputable matters, what does that kind of connote to you? What, what does that give you, what, what, what do you think of when you start hearing these various translations? What's that? It doesn't amount to very yeah, it doesn't, yeah, it's not important. <laughs> I mean, it, it, maybe to the individual it's important, but it's not important to the, to the larger body. We're not talking about things central or core to the faith. In fact, we're not even talking about things important to the faith. Okay, I mean, if you want to talk about what's core to the faith, you could probably look at something like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. These are things that Christians for millennia have believed and confessed is true. But even things like baptism. Okay, now baptism is essential, but we always, we dispute on who gets baptized and how you're baptized. Do you dunk? Do you spritz? Do you pour? Do you baptize children? Do you baptize only adult believers? So those are differences of opinion on baptism. Now, baptism is an essential. We have to be baptized. Jesus commands it. But how do you do it? That's the disputed thing. But that doesn't fall into this category. Okay? Baptism, the arguments over baptism are not adiaphora. Okay? Or how about church government? Do we do a Presbyterian style like we have? We, the church is governed by ministers, elders, and deacons. And then you have a structure of a regional church and then a national church that has this sort of almost representative style of government? Or do you have a hierarchical model like the Episcopal Church or the Roman Catholic Church where you have bishops ruling over a diocese and then archbishops ruling over multiple dioceses? Or do you have a congregational model where each church is individually governs itself? Those are That's not adiaphora. Okay? Christians have can dispute on these things, and that's why we have different denominations, because we believe different things regarding baptism, we believe different things regarding church government. Or, I, I just struggle in how to call this, because when I say views of salvation, it makes it sound like a very core issue. Salvation's a core issue. But, uh, but what I'm talking about is more like views of predestination. So you've got your Calvinists on one side, you've got your Arminians on the other side. That's not adiaphora either. That's not a non-essential. It's not core to the belief, but it's sort of like, if you think of like a, well, dartboard target, okay? You got your bullseye. Those are your core beliefs. Then that next circle that surrounds the bullseye, that would be where these things fall. Important things, not core to the faith, but not non-important. The adiaphora would be like way on the edge of the board, okay? What do you eat? You know, what days do you observe? You know, what, how do you dress going to church? Things like that. So these things I've just talked about, baptism, church government, views of salvation, all important issues over which Christians can and actually do disagree, but these are not adiaphora. Paul calls the adiaphora, the non-essentials, to eat or not to eat meat. 
or special days of religious observance. And we'll get into that later this morning. Now, he's saying that these things, these non-essential things, should not cause dispute in the church. To the stronger brother, welcome the weaker brother. To the weaker brother, don't judge the stronger brother. And all of these should not cause dispute in the church because we are to love one another. We are to welcome and accept one another. All of this comes under that umbrella in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where we are to be living sacrifices. Right? And then he goes on in Romans 12, 3. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Be humble. That's probably particularly for the stronger brother. I know more than you do. You are weak in the faith. I'm going to instruct you. You know, be humble. Welcome them. Or, this is part of letting love be genuine. Romans 12, 9. Love one another. Accept one another. All of this is part of living out that law of love that we saw a few weeks back in Romans 13. Love your neighbors yourself. That's, that's what this all kind of boils down to. Why would you look down on your weaker brother with contempt? Or why would you pass judgment on your stronger brother if you love them, if you're showing love to them, if you're being humble, and if you're living a life as a living sacrifice to God? And it, really, all of this is just part of our sanctification. Right? This is all part of our growing sanctification, how we are trying to make our practice, our day-to-day living, match our position in Christ. We are in Christ, saved, justified, and we are wholly righteous in his sight. Our lives can kind of be described at times as a holy mess. Right? So we're trying to get that holy mess to match our position in Christ. And part of that is welcoming the weaker brother, not passing judgment on the stronger brother. All right, so moving on. Romans 5 through 8. Liberty in terms of holy days. So it wasn't only over the issues related to food that there was a dispute, but also over, I'm calling them holy days. It's not in, you know, it's just which particular days that you observe, right? One brother, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So within the Roman church, you had two broad factions. You had one who had probably in their own mind, a, a, a church calendar of holy days, for lack of a better phrase. They, they had certain days that they would esteem as better, more important than others. Whereas the other faction was like, no, it's just the same, you know, what's the phrase, right? Same day, different stuff. I'll use a cleaner word than particularly with children in the church. We don't want to say the other word, but same day, different stuff, Right? Now, this almost certainly seems to be a Jewish thing, because if you think about the church as being comprised of Jews and Gentiles, which one of those two groups would come out of a system that had holy day observances? The Jews, right? They had their religious calendar. They had their religious festivals that they would celebrate, that they were required as Jews to celebrate. There were at least three that every Jewish male and their family would have to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, the Feast of uh, Booths, and the Feast of uh, Pentecost would be the three. Now, it could also refer to pagan worshipers. You know, pagans would have holy days too, I'm sure. You know, particular days of observance. But the dispute here arose whether or not to celebrate certain holy days. 
The weaker brother would say yes. The stronger brother would say no. To the Jewish person who's celebrating these Jewish feast days, like, look, you're, you're, you're a Christian now, right? That stuff has been fulfilled in Christ. You don't need to celebrate these things anymore. To the pagans, like, well, you're not part of that religion anymore. Why are you celebrating these holy days? Now, of course, this is not an issue isolated to the first century Roman church, right? There have always been disputes over days in the church, particularly coming out of the Reformation and all the people coming out of Roman Catholicism with their church calendar, whether you celebrate St. So-and-so's day or you celebrate the Feast of St. So-and-so over here or whatever you do. And even today, I think there are still within Reformed circles, disputes over the propriety of whether or not you celebrate Christmas or Easter. I've been in some churches where it's like, at least people in the church would say, I am not putting up a Christmas tree because that's part of a pagan, it's a, it's a pagan holiday. Christmas is a pagan holiday. It's just been, you know, Christianity has just sort of like annexed it for, for their own purposes. Or Easter. I mean, you know, if you think about Easter, how, do, how, do, how does the world celebrate Easter? Bunnies and eggs, that's all, that's all pagan fertility ritual, right? You know, and, but Christianity sort of appropriated the, you know, that day for the resurrection. So you know, people will say, well, we don't want to associate with Christmas because of its pagan origins. We don't want to celebrate Easter because of its pagan origins. So you have these disputes even within reform circles. And there are some that are very adamant about not even celebrating Halloween. Don't ever, ever celebrate Halloween. It's like, I understand because of its pagan origins, but really the way we celebrate Halloween in America, it's, it's, just, it's kids getting dressed up and getting candy. <laughs> you know, at, at what point it's like, it's like, it's not a pagan thing. <laughs> it's like, if you want to feel good about yourself, show a Reformation movie on, on Halloween because it's Reformation Day. Show, show the Martin Luther movie, then you can go out and get them, dress the kids as Martin Luther, have them go out and get candy or something, however you want to do it. But one thing that needs to be addressed here is the issue of the Sabbath. The Sabbath. Because some have used this verse, as well as a couple of others, and I'm going to have you turn to these verses to um, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 10. I'm going to back up and read starting in verse 8. So Paul here is showing his concern for the Galatians where he says, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So Paul there in that context, he's warning them, don't go back to your old way of living. Don't go back to your old worldly way of living. And then he says, you used to observe days and months and years and seasons. Some have argued that that is a verse that is arguing against the celebration of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is, is, been, is obsolete now. Or you could flip over a more maybe explicit uh, references in Colossians 2 in verse 16. 
But in Colossians 2, verse 16, we read, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. So it kind of sounds reminiscent to Romans 14. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon. Also sounds reminiscent to what we just read in Romans 14. Or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So there, you can flip back to Romans 14. There it almost sounds like Paul is saying, the Sabbath is not important. Don't celebrate the Sabbath. Now, a few things can be said about this. Now, to be sure, the Old Testament Sabbath has found its fulfillment in Christ, who is our Sabbath rest. Christ is our Sabbath rest. But, not using it in the context of my favorite word, this is just more of a contrast, but the writer of Hebrews says there is yet a Sabbath rest for God's people. Hebrews 4, 9 through 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. That reference there, when he says, if you've entered God's rest, when did God rest? On the seventh day. Has he stopped resting in, in that sense? No, his work is done, right? His work, at least as far as creation, is done. So when you enter that rest, that is the eternal Sabbath rest. And we're on that way now, right? We're kind of like in a metaphorical wilderness journey like Israel was in the wilderness going to the promised land but it's not land as in ground it's land as in our eternal kingdom that we're waiting for so here you know the Christ has fulfilled the Sabbath and but there's yet a Sabbath rest for God's people so while certain Old Testament ceremonial aspects of the Sabbath have been fulfilled the Sabbath still remains a creation ordinance so the idea of celebrating the Sabbath on the seventh day is done, right? We celebrate the Lord's Day. That is our Sabbath day, the first day of the week, not the last day of the week. But this idea of the Sabbath still remains. It's a creation ordinance, Genesis 2-3. God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. That's not part of the law. That's part of God in creation, <laughs> At the end of creation, I'm resting. I'm making this day holy. And we see it now also in the commandments. Uh, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's why the reform still recognized the Sabbath, but switching it, recognizing the change that has happened in the New Testament from the last day of the week to the first day of the week, the Lord's day. Now back to Romans 14. So regarding this holy days controversy that they were having here in the church, Paul says each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, this is a matter of conscience. This is a matter of liberty, not an essential of the faith. If you're going to observe the day, be convinced in your own mind that it is the right thing to do. 
So whatever we do, however we act, we must do so out of conviction, even if that conviction turns out to be wrong or misinformed. Another way of putting it is don't unnecessarily bind your conscience unless you're convinced the action is right and biblical. Right? Don't, don't put yourself under a yoke of something if you're not sure that that is a biblical yoke. That's the point Paul is trying to make here. Don't bind your conscience. You must be fully convinced that whether to eat meat or not to eat meat, whether to celebrate a day or not celebrate a day, you need to be fully convinced in your own conscience. Paul continues, verses 6 and 7. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. So here what Paul is saying is, in these two verses is that if both the weaker and the stronger brother are honoring God in what they do, what concern is that of yours? <laughs> I mean, again, we're not talking about whether you're ignoring or denying an essential of the faith. We're talking about, you know, think that target, things on the outer edge of the target, things that are so far removed from the essentials of the faith that it's a matter of conviction and conscience and liberty. If someone wants to eat only vegetables, what does that matter? Right? Why does it matter if someone only wants to eat vegetables? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. Oh, well, they're missing out on some good. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Or if someone wants to celebrate a day and it's not sin, why does it matter? That's the point Paul's making here. If, as a weaker brother, I, observe, I believe in observing certain days over others, as long as I observe it in honor of the Lord, okay, that's the key. <laughs> Don't observe a pagan holiday because it reminds you of your pagan practices. Observe a day because you're honoring it, you know, you're honoring the Lord in that observance of that day. Or if, as a stronger brother, I feel free to go and eat the prime rib special at the Legion Hall on a Saturday, as long as I eat that, giving thanks to the Lord, in honoring the Lord, and I'm enjoying that meal in the honor of the Lord, what does it matter to you? And this is all, again, born out of a conviction and a belief that we don't belong to ourselves, but to another, right? I don't belong to you. You don't belong to me. We belong to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us or compels us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. My life is not my own, right? My life belongs to Christ. My life is hid in Christ. He died for me. He purchased me. He bought me. He redeemed me. I'm his. As long as I'm doing something out of the conviction of my heart that is honoring him, it doesn't, I don't have to necessarily answer to you and vice versa. Or Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Again, I am Christ because he died for me. What we do or don't do should always come from the conviction that we belong to Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's Paul's statement there in verse 8, right? For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live, whether we die, we are the Lord's. So what truly unites the body of Christ? Is it dietary practices? Is it whether or not you observe one day or the other or you think they're all the same? No. It is that we belong to Christ. That's what unites the body of Christ. We are Christians. We belong to him. He is our Lord. We are his servants. Again, Paul and Philippians. That is his Philippians 1 verses 20 and 21. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Whatever I do, I want to make sure I honor the Lord in doing it. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Paul's desire above all else to honor Christ in his body, whether by life or by death. Then he goes on to say, for to me, to live is my dietary practices. Or does he say, for me to live is my holy day observances? No, he says, for me to live is Christ. To live is Christ. So if we dispute over non-essentials, we damage the body of Christ. If we pass judgment on others for their practices in the body of Christ, we destroy the unity in the body of Christ. Now we move on, finally, verses 9 through 12. And here is the crux of the matter. This is liberty in terms of obeying Christ. When we argue and dispute over opinions, remember, opinions, um, disputable things, doubtful things, things that are on that fringe of that target. When we dispute over these things, as we looked at in the first eight verses, we damage the body of Christ. So how do you think Christ feels when we unnecessarily damage and divide his body? When we split the church because of the color of the carpeting? Or if we split the church because we changed a hymnal? Or if we split the church because you don't like the way the paint is? Or, or, or because the pastor wore a red tie instead of a dark green tie? Whatever. You know, these are, I mean, now I'm using silly examples. Those are, wouldn't even be on the target. They'd be so far off the target, you're putting dart holes in your wall at that point. But the point is, you know, if we split over whether or not we eat meat or don't eat meat, or if we split over whether or not you want to observe a, a day of fasting and prayer on a Wednesday, I'm like, it's just Wednesday. If we split the church over that, we are damaging unnecessarily the body of Christ. Now, to be sure, again, I want to make sure this is clear, there are and will be times when it becomes necessary to take a stand on an issue, and even if so, if it happens to be that way, to divide over an issue. Paul, Consider Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, where he tells them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he, he is leaving, he's going on his way to Jerusalem, and as he's stopping, he stops by in Ephesus, where actually it's in Miletus. But he calls the Ephesian elders to come down and meet with him. And he gives them, like, look, I'm probably not going to see you anymore. 
So I'm going to impart some just last words of wisdom to you before I go on and probably going to go to my death here in Rome. But this is what I want you to do. And he says, watch over the flock. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So he warns these elders, wolves are going to come into your flock. Cast those wolves out if you find them. Cast them out. Divide, right? This is issues of the gospel. Or about Paul's warning to the Corinthian church concerning a brother that was caught in some gross sin. 1 Corinthians 5.11 But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Again, a person living in gross, unrepentant sin in the church has to be cast out for the health of the body of the church. Or consider our Lord's warning to the churches in the book of Revelation, those those letters, where he warns each one because they each have a different issue. Whether it's the the church that's loveless, it's all truth and no love, or whether it's the church that is welcomed in false teaching, or whether the church that is dead, he warns them. Error, serious error, must be dealt with and dealt with radically if need be. But here Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about non-essentials, not issues of discipline, not issues of error. These are differences in opinion. That's what Paul's talking about here, differences of opinion. So when we escalate opinions to the level of like DEFCON 1 in the church, we're damaging the body of Christ. And we offend our Lord. Because the truth of the matter is we don't answer to one another in matters of opinion, only to Jesus. Verse 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Christ died and lived again. He is the Lord of the church. So I cannot pass judgment over you because I did not die and be, I was not raised again for you. And you cannot pass judgment on me because you did not die and were raised for me. Again, I go back to what I said earlier. Jesus redeemed the church. He purchased her with her, his precious blood. Right? For you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. 1 Corinthians 6.20 What was that price? His blood. You are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Romans 3.24. How valuable is that blood? 1 Peter 1.18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That blood is worth more than silver, gold, anything in this world. That's the blood that Christ shed to buy you out of slavery. And again, if you remember back in Romans 6, we used that slavery analogy. Paul used that slavery analogy. We were slaves to sin, now we're slaves to righteousness. We belong to the Lord. He bought us for himself. So that's what Paul then comes back to in verse 10. Why then do you pass judgment on your brother? That's talking to the weaker brother. 
Or why do you despise your brother? Now he's talking to the stronger brother. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. <laughs> That's Paul's point. It's like, why are you... I think of Jesus with the log and the speck, right? <laughs> it's like, why do you go up to your brother and pick the speck out of his eye when you've got this giant you know, mass, this giant two-by-four sticking out of your own eye? That's what Paul's saying here. Why are you picking on these little things? Why, weaker brother, do you judge your stronger brother? Why, stronger brother, do you regard your weaker brother with contempt? Why would we do such things, seeing as we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God? Now, what is the judgment seat of God? But here, the point I bring that up is because there are some that will look at this, and they'll look at something in 2 Corinthians 5 that talks about the judgment seat of Christ. And they will distinguish that from what you see at the end of Revelation or what you see in Matthew 24, the great white throne judgment where Christ separates the sheep from the goats and passes judgment and says those on his left hand will go into eternal fire. So they'll distinguish these two. They'll say the first one here, the judgment seat of Christ or the judgment seat of God is for believers while the white throne judgment is for the unbelievers. But I see no reason to to posit two judgments or two judgment seats. The point here is that Paul is saying, we're all going to appear or we're all going to stand before God. Right? Because what happens, again, at that judgment, right? All the dead are raised. He's going to separate sheep, goats. The sheep go off to be with the Father in heaven. The goats go, you know, again, nothing against sheep or goats in a, you know, a farm setting. I'm sure they're both adorable animals, but but the point is those on the left hand go into eternal fire. Now, does this mean we can lose our salvation? Is Paul warning here? Don't do these things. Don't judge. Don't don't condemn. Don't look down on because you're going to lose your salvation. Can we lose our salvation? No, I'm seeing a few heads shake. No, we can't lose our salvation. This is not a judgment for sin. Because that was done, right? Once and done on the cross. But a judgment of our works. Again, if you remember back in Romans 2, all of our judgment is on works. We are judged based on what we do. Uh, We looked at this when we looked at Romans 6, verses uh, 6 through 10. I was going to read something else, but looking at the time. Um, But here it says, you know, the wicked and the unbelievers will be judged by their works because their works are all tainted by sin and they will pass into eternal judgment. The righteous and the believers will be rewarded based on their works because they've already been justified by grace through faith. Now their works are judged for rewards in heaven. There's this passage in 1 Corinthians 3 that talks about how you're going to pass through the fire and if what you have done is silver or gold, it'll pass through the fire, it'll survive the fire. But if what your works are are wood and hay and stubble, that's going to get burned up in the fire. It says, but you will pass through as though escaping from a fire. The point is, your salvation is secure, but what you do in this world is what God will reward you on in the next world. And how you build on the foundation of Christ, that gets rewarded. So if you kind of dither away the time that you have, you're not going to get much of a reward. But if you work diligently, you know, using the strength that the Lord has given you, you will get rewarded much. Think of the, the, you know, the, the parable with the the, the talents, right? You know, 
the person was given five, he makes five more, and then the Lord says, okay, give him, you know, I, I took your, I took your, your minas, I buried it in the ground, and I, I, I mean, I, I invested in it, I got, I made ten minas. It's like, great, you know, you get ten cities. And then he goes to the guy and says, I took your minas, and I, I made five minas more. It's like, great, give him five cities. And then one, to, one who says, well, I buried it in the ground, and it's like, here, here's your mina back, and then he gets judged. The point is your works will be judged and you will be rewarded in them. Now, again, I want to emphasize one thing here. Rewards are not strictly earned or merited, right? Nothing we do is strictly merits or earns any kind of reward from God. Because even the best works, right? Heidelberg Catechism says even the most holiest of men has a small beginning in this obedience that we owe to the Lord. And our good works are even the good works of believers are tainted to some degree. God graciously condescends to reward us based on our works. But it also means that we will have to give an account, verses 11 and 12. As it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, that's a quote from Isaiah 45, 23, which also sounds an awful lot like Philippians 2. And then Paul closes the section by warning us that each one will give an account to God. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm always concerned whether or not my life or conduct will make it through the Lord's quality assurance test, right? You know, again, think of that fire that's like the Lord's QA testing. Will my works pass through, you know? If they get burned up, no, it didn't pass the quality assurance test. If they do pass through, then you know it, you know it, it will get rewarded. Because I know I'm justified, I know I'm being sanctified, and I know I will be glorified. That's all promised in the Bible. But I also know my sanctification looks an awful lot like a very volatile stock market, right? Ups and downs and gains and losses. And I always think about what Matthew, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, that we will have to give an account for every careless word. Every careless, anybody here speak any careless words this week? <laughs> it's like no one's right. People are raising their hands down. <laughs> I've spoken some careless words this week. The bottom line though here is since we all have to stand before the judgment seat of God, how ought we to treat our brothers and sisters in the faith. We ought to treat them with love. We ought to treat them with welcoming acceptance over these issues that are opinions. So don't pass judgment on one another. That's what Paul says in this passage. He lays out how to deal with disputes in the church over matters of opinion. The stronger brother is not to despise the weaker. The weaker is not to pass judgment on the stronger. And then based on this context, this passage seems more geared toward the weaker brother. We're going to look at the stronger brother, Lord willing, next week um, in verses 13 to 23. But here, again, Christian liberty is not a club to cudgel your brother or sister in Christ with, right? Whether you're the stronger brother or the weaker brother. Christian liberty is to be used. It is, it is a gift the weaker brother ought not to seek to bind the conscience of the stronger brother to his or her own opinions. Likewise, the stronger brother ought not to bruise the conscience of the weaker brother. We'll look at that more next week, Lord willing. But moreover, as a church, we need to make sure that we don't bind the conscience of believers to things not clearly spelled out in Scripture. 
That's why we have a regulative principle of worship. That's why we don't worship in certain ways that are not explicitly spelled out in Scripture, because to do so binds the conscience of believers. Now, I had hoped to get into some modern-day adiaphora, but I'm going to... Because there are, you know, it's like, you know, we talk about meat offered to idols and we talk about holy days. That doesn't seem to be as much of an issue in the church today, at least in this church. But what are, you know, what would be some common, uh, you know, modern day things that would cause strife over matters of opinions in the church today? Well, I'll just give you a small list here. I mean, things like alcohol, <laughs> whether whether or not to drink alcohol, um, what kind of TVs, movies, books, music you should listen to. Food, I, mean, I guess food is still a bit, a bit of an issue, whether you're on a vegan diet or what, you know, what have you. Um, in some churches, head coverings on women, right? Uh, what type of music in the church do you, do you play? Or how do you dress for church? You know, these are issues, I think, that we need to allow one another to exercise liberty without division. But we could talk a little bit more about that next time.